I imagine most of our thoughts are with the people of Ukraine today, with the people fleeing their homes or standing their ground in this moment of profound danger and uncertainty. That's certainly where my thoughts are. We will, of course, be praying for them this morning, and we'll come back to Ukraine in this sermon also. But first, I would like to draw your attention to another piece of news from this past week, a hero for many who died on Monday. Tributes to Paul Farmer have been everywhere this week. I'm guessing some of you have long been familiar with his story and his work, and maybe others, like me, knew very little. He was a physician, an anthropologist, an advocate, and a visionary, somebody who had a huge impact in the field of global public health. And his sudden death this week has provided an occasion for reflection on all that he did and on who he was. One of the tributes circling this past week was written by Tracy Kidder, a journalist who wrote a biography of Dr. Farmer 20 years ago. That book, Mountains Beyond Mountains, tells the story of his visiting Haiti as a recent college graduate and volunteering in a local hospital there. It's not that I'm unhappy working here, he wrote to a friend back home in a letter at that time. The biggest problem is that the hospital is not for the poor. I'm taken aback. I really am. He saw firsthand that the healthcare system in place was simply not designed to help the majority of the country's population, but only a wealthy few. And he became determined to do something about it. He enrolled in medical school back in the US and continued to spend most of his time in Haiti. I actually have no idea how he did that. That's amazing enough to me. And while he was still a student taking classes, he founded a clinic and began what would become his life's work, bringing high-quality health care to impoverished people, first in this kind of small-scale way and then in much bigger scale through the organization he founded called Partners in Health. The work took him to several continents and involved on-the-ground care for people, massive fundraising, and advocating for systemic change. He's remembered as somebody with abundant energy, this unwavering sense of what was right, and crystal clear sense of direction. In her biography, which I started reading this past week, Dr. Kidder recounts her first encounter with Dr. Farmer, long before he'd become a well-known international figure, when he was simply a young physician working for change in Haiti. She was in the country on an assignment as a journalist, and she was reporting with uh, American military forces who'd been sent there during a time of political turmoil. She happened to encounter Dr. Farmer by chance, and then she sought him out for more conversation. She writes that she was immediately intrigued by him and his way of seeing things. She recognized that he saw things in Haiti very, very differently from the American military who she was working with, and she was glad to pick his brain and listen to him. But she quickly drifted out of touch with him, and what she says about that experience is fascinating. He disturbed me, she said. Writing my article about Haiti, I'd come to share the pessimism of the soldiers I'd stayed with. I think we should have left Haiti to itself, one of them had said to me. Does it really matter who's in power? They're still going to have the rich and the poor and no one in between. I don't know what we hope to accomplish. I guess it's best not even to try and figure it out. The soldiers had come to Haiti and lifted a terror and restored a government, and then they'd left, and the country was just about as poor and broken down as when they'd arrived. 
They had done their best, I thought. They were worldly and tough. They wouldn't cry about things beyond their control. And then here's the part about Farmer. I felt as though in Farmer I'd been offered another way of seeing and thinking about a place like Haiti. But his way would be hard to share because it implied such an extreme definition of a term like doing one's best. She glimpsed something different in Dr. Farmer, a different way of seeing the world and its possibilities, a way beyond cynicism, beyond the tired and unjust status quo. And it was disturbing because it demanded an openness to change and a willingness to be a part of it. What do you do with an experience like that? What do you do with a vision that troubles your comfortable sense of the way things are? That is a very long way to get into our reading from the Gospel of Luke this morning. But I think the question of what to do with a glimpse of a different world is an appropriate one for the Transfiguration story because that is some glimpse that Peter, James, and John are given. This familiar story is often described as sort of a spiritual high point, a euphoric mountaintop experience for the three disciples who happened to be there when Jesus' face started to shine. And maybe that's so, but the whole thing actually sounds pretty terrifying and troubling to me. What's for sure is that what happened on the mountain that day disrupted the disciples' familiar way of seeing things. Jesus was a compelling teacher, powerful healer, a compassionate friend. His followers knew that much. A week or so before heading up the mountain, Peter had even dared to call him the Messiah, the one chosen by God to lead God's people into a new future of justice and peace. The disciples understood quite a lot about who Jesus was and what he was about. But this vision and the voice that came from the heavens pointed to something more. This rabbi they'd been tromping around with was not just a healer, a healer and teacher and leader. He was part of God's story of saving through the ages, right alongside the great prophets of the scriptures. He was so full of grace that he shimmered with the glory of God. And he was, according to this voice, God's son, God's chosen. That's a lot to take in. I suppose on the one hand, Peter, James, and John might have been encouraged. After all, they have hitched their wagons to a very bright star. To learn that your friend and teacher is, in fact, the Son of God, and that he happens to hang out with Moses and Elijah, is a pretty big deal. The disciples clearly believe Jesus is going places, that he's growing in power and status, and that he's going to right the wrongs of their society in a very powerful and decisive way. This vision only confirms that, right? Well, sort of. Because that voice from the heavens also tells the disciples to listen to Jesus. And he's been saying some very hard things lately. Saying that he is not, in fact, about to conquer the oppressors by force. That he is headed for betrayal and death. That following him doesn't mean one victory after another, but rather carrying a cross and losing your life for his sake. This would be a whole lot easier if the voice had said, this is my son, my chosen. He's about to knock the Romans upside the head. But no, the voice said, listen to him. And that's much more difficult. 
This experience on the mountaintop has to be profoundly disturbing for the disciples, learning that God is at work in mysterious and profound ways in Jesus and in ways that are so utterly confounding, so wildly different from ordinary notions of power and success. It's a glimpse of a very different way of seeing the world and their lives within it. What do you do with that? It's worth noticing that only three of Jesus' disciples had this experience up on the mountain. The other nine were not hauled up there for the sound and light show. Not all followers of Jesus are confronted with these sorts of earth-shaking pyrotechnic visions, but I do think we are all given glimpses of a different world, one that is full of grace and love and possibility. We might glimpse it in the life of another person, someone like Paul Farmer, living with extraordinary hope and vision and integrity. We might glimpse it in a song or a poem. We might catch sight of it in a service of worship, in a gathering around the table. We might see it in communities living with uncommon generosity and openness to their neighbors. These glimpses of another world can be beautiful and moving, and they can also be disturbing, because they might mean your priorities in your life need to change. And really, the truth is that we have, whether we have been up the mountain or not, we have seen a new world in Jesus, this one who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, according to the letter to the Colossians. In him, we have seen what the kingdom of God looks like, justice and joy and mercy and peace. It looks like service to others. It looks like love. And that makes all the difference. We have seen that God's ways look nothing like an invading army. Nothing like lust for power. Nothing like the strong dominating the weak. Nothing like innocent civilians fleeing for their lives. God's ways look like nonviolent resistance, like calls for justice, like prayers for peace, like welcome extended to refugees. We have seen that God's ways look like Jesus. And what do we do with a vision like that? We let it in. We let it trouble us and needle us and move us to prayer. We let it urge us to act with greater mercy and compassion. We let it work in us and lead us toward a transfigured world. We let it change us day by day. I don't know just what Peter, James, and John did with the vision that they had on the mountain. Luke only tells us they didn't tell anybody about it. But I do know what they found when they came back down. A great crowd in need and a child calling out for healing. They saw Jesus do what he always did. Listen and love and heal. They glimpsed once again the new world that he made possible. And I have to imagine they remembered the words from the cloud. Listen to him. Listen to him and let his ways become yours. Thanks be to God. Amen.